So it is our Summer Refresh podcast. We do these bonus episodes right throughout the year. And I'm very uh, pleased to be joined by journalist Mike McCarthy. Welcome to the Summer Refresh bonus podcast. In your time, Mike, you've worked for the BBC, for Sky News, covering Hillsborough, floods in Cumbria, amongst many a story over, over your time. But one which is obviously the biggest for you takes you back to 2021. And you've now got a campaign off the back of Ross, your son, who committed suicide in his 30s. In effect, Mike, am I right in saying that your campaign now in your life is to raise awareness of mental health and suicide in general and and how we shouldn't really be afraid to talk about it? If I want to start off first, Mike, just to kind of from a dad point of view, tell me about Ross. Ross was an incredible son, one of the best sons a dad could wish to have. He was... Loving, funny, uh, hardworking, had a great work ethic. He was very attached to his family. He loved us and uh, we loved him. He was a great, happy little boy growing up with no apparent significant problems. As he started to get older in his teenage years, he developed an anxiety. You know, as, as a parent, you hope that that's something that's going to fade away that it's just a a passing phase but it wasn't it stayed with him in many ways it it got worse that said you know it's so often the, the the way isn't it when you hear about people who are lost to suicide their loved ones left behind describe them as fun loving and life and soul of the party and that's exactly how ross was if you'd seen him in a pub with his mates he's probably the last one that you would have chosen the kind of person who was likely to end up taking their own lives but he was quite selfless as well he'd always grown up actually with kind of feeling for life's underdogs he just seemed to relate to them and wanted to help them and kind of understood people who who would you know fall into that that description he got very good at hiding his depression because in his mind, in his world, he didn't want to, as he saw it, inflict his sadness on other people. So he used to pretend to be happy. We knew he was depressed. We knew that he'd been struggling for a long time with depression and that he'd gone to ask for therapy. I was put on a six month waiting list. This is after suffering with depression for over 10 years. And he died two weeks into the wait for counselling. As a statistic, Mike, which is something which I didn't know really until I've gone onto the Baton of Hope website, it is the biggest killer, suicide, when you look at against anything from cancer, you know, an RTA, drugs, alcohol. When you read into your story and Ross's story and all the other kind of stories what have come together as you've started this charity and as you started this campaign to talk about it all of those above mentioned have all been talked about whereas the still suicide kind of lives behind this curtain particularly from a male point of view that to me is something where the more we talk about it the easier it's going to be because from a male point of view like you were saying I don't think anybody, as just as a man, you kind of just feel like you can't break down and cry. You don't want to sort of use 
maybe a situation to get on top of you. you. You try and find a way to stumble over it, but there's only so much you can do. And is it a case of now for the charity, Mike, to open up? And I know you have a workplace charter to kind of go, okay, there needs to be so much here to break this down. This isn't just a conversation between myself and you. It's not just a conversation between the charity and a load of MPs. It's a case of going, if we can get this at a a small level at the base, the conversation will only grow. Would you agree? Yeah, sure. I mean, a lot of what you've said there is absolutely right. It is the biggest killer of under 35s in this country. Uh, It's the biggest killer of men under 50 in this country. It was something that I didn't realise until we lost Ross. And I've been a journalist for 40 years and covered just about everything. I've covered wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. I've covered politics in Washington, D.C. And as you mentioned, floods, terrorist atrocities, crime, sport, you name it. And this was one societal issue that hadn't really crossed my radar, suicide. And when I discovered after we lost our son that it was the biggest killer of under 35s in this country, men and women, it came as a shock and I began to question myself and ask why was it that in all of those years we never really came across it, you know, until it was too late, until our our son had, had taken his life. And again, you're absolutely right that there's a much higher proportion of suicides amongst men. Three quarters of the people who take their lives are men. Again, as a journalist, I I suppose I've become conditioned over the years into asking questions about everything. And I wanted to know what it was. Why were men taking their lives in such huge numbers? You know, the societal catastrophe that nobody's talked about. There's been very little political debate, such a small amount of public discourse, no lessons in the classroom, no lectures in the universities. Why was all all of this? And I think what you mentioned there, Johnny, about talking, I think, again, it's a sweeping generalisation, this, but generally, I think men aren't very good at talking about their emotions. I think our emotional intelligence, again, generally speaking, is nowhere near as high as it is with with women. And I think we've got a lot to learn from women in that respect. It's the 21st century. And I think emotional intelligence is far more at a premium than it was, you know, in the days of old when men worked in factories and heavy engineering and and all the rest of it. There was this sort of very uh, macho world that so many of us grew up in. Well, times have changed. Maybe it's a question of men sort of possibly needing to to catch up with the changing times and accept that, you know, we're human beings. Uh, Vulnerability is not a weakness. Crying is not a weakness. I get it completely. You know, I've I've grown up in a world where you've tried hard to hide, to mask those inner feelings, those inner emotions, because of the fear of not being seen as as masculine. And uh, I think it's time to let that go and focus on the fact that three quarters of the people who take their lives are men. Do some proper research into this. It's like so many areas are overlooked when it comes to mental health, which compared with physical health, we are so poor 
at, you know, research, coverage, spending, you name it. When you hear of the latest NHS waiting figures, it's invariably about hip operations and knee replacements, etc. All important issues. Very infrequently do we hear about the waiting list for mental health issues, for example. On a personal note here, Mike, I know someone who has had suicide affect them and not sort of directly, but certainly to a level of going, this happened, or we've woke up to the news of this has happened. And, and that's been twice in the space I've known this person for, you know, for under 10 years. You can't really maybe get your head around that yourself. What was surprising as well? I know you'd had a meeting with Savid Javid, the MP, when he was health secretary. And when he was Secretary of State, he's only talked about losing his brother once. And, you know, that was at a, at a presentation, which I know you and, and a, a friend of yours, Steve, were, were in attendance with a host of others. And you think, why do I not know that? It's not for a case of wanting to know it. For that someone so high up in government who is not standing at, a, at another election, to me, that was something where I'd be very much like, could he do more? Could the media do more and put that on a front page? And again, I don't really know the details behind it, but something where it affects so many people and it does just seem to be blown over for, for wanting a better word. Yeah, absolutely. I think to some degree, we're still working on a Victorian model where people with mental illnesses were isolated from society. You know, they were put in the sanatoriums away from civilization, And there's still an element of that. And a huge amount of myths have grown up around suicide. The, one of the major ones being that if we talk about suicide, it puts the idea into somebody's head. Now, that's something that's been roundly dismissed by all of the experts, all the academics, all of the clinicians. And it's been roundly dismissed for years. And yet we're still finding that people are using the same myth. They're reluctant to talk to somebody about suicide because somehow that person won't have thought about it, you know, and that, that is absolutely not the case. But it's one of many myths surrounding a suicide that are stubbornly persistent. And for whatever reason, and I think, you know, you mentioned the media and, and politics, and I really do think it's, you know, we have universal responsibility. We can all play a role, whoever you are, whatever your background, whichever sector of society you're living in or working in, we've all got a role to play. I think in terms of the stigma for suicide in the media, for example, there are still some very outdated phrases. I sometimes think that if we don't even get the language right, then we've got a long way to go. For example, there was a headline not so very long ago, MP takes time off work after admitting depression. You know, depression is the common cold of mental illness. And would you admit to having a chest infection or a runny nose? Of course you wouldn't. So why yeah. should there be some element of guilt attached to being mentally well, we still use the phrase commit suicide. Now, that comes from pre-1961, the illegal status of suicide, and it was illegal in my lifetime. People who attempted it and survived could be and were put in prison in my lifetime. Shocking for me to consider that. But the illegal status was lifted in 1961. And here we are more than 60 years later, still using that outdated language. And I'm not judgmental because I used it 
all my life. It's the phrase that we use. It's what we're brought. It's just used casually, committed suicide. But since losing my beloved son, I realise how hurtful it can feel because, you know, he may not have been perfect in life, but he didn't commit a sin and he didn't commit a crime. And um, now I understand, again, just how important language can be. But as I say, that's just one area in education, as I say, in politics, in commerce, in business. We've all got a role to play. And uh, there is really, this is one of the messages, I guess, we're trying to put across through Baton of Hope. There is universal responsibility. And that's why it's a baton. That's why we decided on a baton, because like in a relay race, you take the baton. Now it's your turn. Now it's your responsibility. We're all involved in this massive communal team, for want of a better word. And I think, Mike, that is absolutely the situation. And I understand, you know, of course, this is raw and you know, I've done many interviews over my time and, and I was really kind of, you've got to keep your professional composure and that's sometimes difficult. When I can look into something more, and I know you've said in regards to Ross, you felt like you could have listened more. And I know that must be really hard from a father point of view and just to try and fix a problem. And sometimes if you don't always see the problem, it's taking the strength of what you've had from now listening to other people and just to bring in Steve so Steve reached out to you. And again, it's almost like this baton was being passed in a strange way long before probably you had the name and the idea of Baton of Hope. But just tell me about Steve and the friendship you have. And Steve lost his son, Jordan. What I found incredible is the strength of someone like Steve and yourself, of course, and anyone who's been in this situation. But for Steve to reach out to you, and one of the things you said, he was a little bit further on in the journey of losing his son, compared to where you were with with your Ross, you guys have come together and formed the idea of the Baton of Hope. Steve reached out, I think it was through LinkedIn at that time. I just sort of felt like a piece of driftwood. I didn't know what was happening to me, which direction I was going in. And the only thing that really kind of struck home was the fact that when I was in touch with other people who really understood what I was going through it kind of gave me some comfort and Steve in particular as you say was ahead of me in terms of his the grieving process and was able to pass on the benefit of his experience um, and we both had very similar stories to to share uh, you know in terms of the services that just aren't there for people like us you know when you lose a child it, it's just the end of the world and Steve nobody could tell him where his son was which hospital he'd been taken to and Steve was left to drive his way back home to Yorkshire he'd been working in Birmingham that day when he got the call he drove home on his own and had to drive around the hospitals to find his son because nobody could tell him and you know when we lost Ross he left a 12 page farewell letter in which he addressed each one of us in turn in the family and that was taken away by the police and I understand that the officer was very empathetic he was a, a kind decent man uh, but the system we found is glacial we couldn't get that letter back it took us a week and at a time when 
your mind is spinning round with circular conversations about the whys and the what ifs and, and you know the letter was Ross's voice it was the last time that Ross was speaking to us and we couldn't get access to it and when we did it you know it answered some of the questions obviously it didn't answer all of them but it answered some of our questions and I, you know I can remember thinking that if I owned nothing else in this world that letter belonged to, to me, it belonged to our family. And it was wrong that we had to fight. As I say, it's not, you know, no, no individual gets up in the morning and thinks, do you know what, I'm going to make the life of a bereaved family even harder today. It wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. But the coroner's office computers weren't speaking to the police office computers. And again, I remember in all the black blur of it that thinking this is the 21st century and all we want is just a digital copy please take a photograph of it and send us a digital copy and it took us sort of a best part of uh, a week to to get hold of it and and i found that through talking to the hundreds of mums and dads and brothers and sisters after that that this is not an uncommon story that these kind of you know hardships on top of the just the darkest grief that you can imagine these kind of things are going on frequently and you know if you lose a child in a road accident there's a normally a family liaison officer uh, who can sort of help you but in this case you're on your own you've got to sort it out yourselves when you just don't feel like carrying on yourself you know it's um it's like your world's ended kids they're, they're your life you know and um yeah so that's a very long answer isn't it? <laughs> but yeah it, it, it's uh, this is why you know with the baton of hope we're we're trying to do something so people don't have to go through these um situations again and that they recognize that there are people out here who care who want to help who want to support and that you know, you, you may feel like I did, that that was the end of my life, but that there is hope and, and you're not alone. Mike, just in regards to the the letter situation, and I, I know obviously Ross had his fiance Charlotte, your grandson, Charlie, you know, within that letter. And I, I didn't want to, to touch on it, obviously, too much. I, I know it's out there and people who know your story, who are listening to this now, who might not, and can obviously go on to the Batman of Hope website and, and sort of get the the information behind that but just on the note about the letter and is that the law Mike could there be a petition started to say this isn't right we need something to change so from literally the off that can be managed better because that just feels well it is wrong yeah and to be honest I don't have all the answers you know whether you approach this kind of thing through legislation or whether there's a a different way of of, you know creating the equivalent of a family liaison officer because legislation takes a long time to get through these situations have been happening for years they're happening today they'll happen tomorrow every single day 17 people in in the uk takes their life and all of that trauma and desperate desperate grief is out there every day so we want to help people 
you know, as soon as we can and, and not allow this situation to continue, whatever it is, whatever the solution is, I think we have to basically recognise the scale of it first of all, recognise the stigma that's around it. You know, let's look at those statistics and ask questions about them. They've stagnated, incidentally, for 15 years. And again, this is another key thing for the baton of hope that all of the experts seem to agree that suicide is preventable. Full stop. There will always be suicides, but in general terms, given the right treatment, and given the right conditions, people can be saved. You know, salvation is out there if we can find a way of offering it to people properly. So it shouldn't have stagnated for 15 years. And again, we've got to ask ourselves some tough questions. There are a lot of good people out there who are working hard, overworked, underpaid, under-resourced, doing their very best. But it's time that we asked ourselves, why isn't this working? If suicide is preventable, why aren't we preventing it? One of the things that we're trying to do as a charity is to drive home this idea of zero suicide society. In the past, we've had targets of like 10%, which is a nonsense because if you say that we're going to try and save 10% of the people, that's accepting that 90% of suicides are okay somehow, that they're kind of manageable. Well, no, we're doing everything that we can. And as one of the MPs who's supporting us has said a few times, that if this was a virus, we'd be doing everything that we could to find a vaccine. Yeah, because it's mental illness, it's sort of kind of accepted as the status quo. Well, not anymore, you know, not as far as the baton of hope is concerned. We'll challenge the status quo. And we'll ask the awkward questions. We'll ask why all the money that's being spent at the moment on suicide prevention isn't working in terms of bringing the figures down. We have to ask ourselves that. And it's not to do with blame at all, to find a route that is best for society. Because if you think of all the potential that we're losing, all of that lost potential and hope, you know, we've got to ask ourselves, is it time to rethink this? change our direction and think of fresh ways in which we're going to tackle those figures once and for all. That kind of takes us into the Baton of Hope and the 12-day tour. So obviously the Baton of Hope charity, not long really you've got your charitable status. I know when you were talking to Steve, in his words was from from you, and please correct my quotes, but it was a case of you going, we need to do a march on Downing Street. (laughs) That's where it's going to end up. Before that, Mike, obviously you've got 12 days at all, starting off in Glasgow, then in Edinburgh, um, Brighton, Manchester, Birmingham, to say the least, ending up the march (laughs) on Downing Street on the 6th of July. I know obviously the charity is developing and a lot of people have a full-time job and working alongside the charity and giving their absolute utmost to it as often as they can. How many sort of are going to be involved as the tour moves on, Mike? I take it you'll be doing every leg and you'll be starting it off with it in your right hand? Um, I won't be starting off every leg. We're sort of leaving that to other people. I'll certainly be at every one of those 12 cities during the day. But it will be, the baton will be carried through the city, each of the 12 cities, and it'll be carried primarily by people who've 
applied through the website to carry the baton and incidentally it's been so humbling to see the messages of people for whom this means so much who've been posting on social media, on Instagram, whatever, just saying that they feel honoured to have been selected to carry the baton. These are mainly people who've lost somebody to suicide or people who've survived a suicide attempt and have stories of hope to share with other people that there is life beyond those suicidal thoughts. So it'll be carried through each of the cities. I'll do my best to be as many of the individual events as I can, because in each city it will be carried from one place to another place. We've tried to incorporate some of the iconic landmarks of each city to show the city off, really, but also to shine a a light on the hope. You know, it's called the Baton of Hope. So to shine a light on all of those people out there, the great charities who are working hard to provide support for people who are feeling suicidal, who are in that dark place, and to speak directly to those people who may be going through a dark spell, who may be thinking that you know there is no place for them on this planet. We want to say to them, you please stay, you deserve your place on this planet just like everybody else and please stay because there are people out there who care about you, you are loved by more people than you probably imagine and we want to show you there is hope that there are armies of people out there who want to help you. This baton is for everybody but because the one thing that seems to unite every single person who takes their life. You know, you very often hear people saying, oh, it's complicated and this approach is difficult because of this. And, you know, it's so complex and difficult to sort of work out how you approach it. Some of which is true, but there's one thing that unites everybody who takes their life. And that is the complete and utter loss of hope. We believe that you you can restore hope that hope is out there in fact in the design of the baton inside you can't actually see the quote but uh, it's inscribed inside a, a quote from Desmond Tutu which says hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness and that's you know one of the key things that we're trying to get across to people in terms of the design of it, Mike, it'd be rude for me not to say the idea roughly when this conversation started was to have that nod to the Olympics and the Olympic torch and that journey. It is a beautifully designed baton and uh, you went to the uh, creme de la creme to get it sorted, didn't you? <laughs> well, it kind of came to us in a way. It was um, just phenomenal. They got to hear about our charity or the ideas for the charity. And as you say, we wanted there to be a thing, a living symbol. You know, there are symbols for everything in physical well-being. You know, every sport has its trophies and its medals and various cups. You know, where are the where are the physical symbols of mental well-being? There are hundreds of thousands around the world for physical health, but little or nothing we could find to symbolize that we should celebrate mental well-being. So we wanted a thing, and to cut a long story short, a company called Thomas Light came on board. And by the way, Thomas Light, they are goldsmiths or and silversmiths to the late Queen Elizabeth II. You know, you don't get much better than, than 
Thomas Lyon. And they offered to design and make the baton, which they have done. And I collected it quite a few weeks ago now. And it, it is, as you say, it's exquisite. The thought and care and love that's gone into it is phenomenal. We've got to know some of the people who are involved in designing and making the the baton. They're sort of close friends. They have done a fantastic job. It's rich with symbolism, beautifully made. And it's quite stunning when I saw it for the first time. I'd seen the designs right from the word go and 3D images of it and, and all the rest of it. But when you see the actual baton, there is something about it. It's it, it, There's no question. It, it captures something that I can't quite describe. It's made with love and people who've made it have their own stories to tell. And that's important to us. And we hope people will get inspiration from it. That does seem to be happening already because, as I say, hundreds and hundreds of people around the country have applied to carry it. And it's going to be an important and emotional moment for them, I think, you know, when they finally do get the chance to carry this symbol of hope and maybe reflect and use their own experience, like a few of us are trying to do, to help people. With the baton in my brain and, and how I was sort of saying to a few of the my colleagues, you're kind of holding this baton. It's going to absorb the stories, the hope, the forgiveness, the anger. All of these emotions are going to be in there. And followed by that, you've not only got the baton of hope leading the way across Glasgow or Birmingham or Milton Keynes or wherever this leads you, I guess, but all the hope and the stories behind that from people. And I think that's a remarkable symbol it's a remarkably clever idea instantly get it and i think by going on to the just giving page give or take fifteen thousand pound and growing for the baton of hope appeal seeing some of the the donations and you had a gala dinner recently to kind of launch the baton of hope and launch the charity and seeing someone who had give a lift to some of your team in a black cab and the cabbie had gone on and it looks like he's dropped everyone off he's pulled over <laughs> He's donated to the course and he's driven off again. And that's the thing, the conversation, what you and I have just had, what other people can have, what other people know, that was absolutely fundamental for me. If it just helps one person, then that was what it was all about. And I really hope, Mike, that the goal for the Zero Suicide Society is something which you achieve. And, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. You're very polite to admit that. But in terms of the journey, I think it's going to be wonderful. It's hashtag pass it on is a real good thing to check straight to that hashtag. You'll be able to to get a real sense of the journey, I guess, in real time. Before we sort of wrap up and if there was one thing you need to tackle straight away for what will happen post-tour, post 6th of July at Downing Street, what would be the one thing you want to tackle first and really put the mark on? There are so many ways that I could answer that from lessons in the classroom. Again, you know, I think you have to sort of go right back to sort of basics and help children to understand the sort of the, the dangers that are out there in terms of their own mental well-being. But also, I think, you know, f again, this is just a personal perspective. There's a, a much bigger picture than me and my family. But I can't help but think that Ross had what was uh, effectively a terminal illness and yet was turned away when the moment came that he asked for help. And I think if we could do something at the crisis end so that people weren't 
turned away with a terminal illness and told, come back in six months' time. That would be, for me, a, a massive breakthrough. When I say these things, I keep going back to the point that it's in every sector of society. And again, I think it was Desmond Tutu who said that, you know, we've got to stop fishing people out of the river and go upstream to find out why they're jumping in in the first place. And that goes to the sort of education side of it, I think. It's time to stop the silence. Silence just breeds stigma and it creates this atmosphere where, uh, as we were saying earlier, men in particular define it very hard to, to talk about. So as you can tell, I'm struggling to, to pick out one single <laughs> thing because whether you're at the highest level of government formulating suicide prevention strategy or it's just an extra text to your mate to say, how are you really? We've all got a part to play and all of those separate things are important in their own way. Do you feel like that should be said? Like, how are you a lot more? Yeah, how are you really? You know, I, I um, under a national, another great charity called Talk Club, I run some talking groups for men in my home city, one at Sheffield Wednesday and one at Sheffield United, so every, every week. The first question is, how are you out of 10 and why? And it's amazing how much information that elicits, how much of open door that is for people to explore their emotional well-being. And again, you know, sometimes when you talk to companies, they say, yeah, but it's so hard to get on top of the mental well-being of your workforce. Well, no, it's not. You just ask that question. Just ask that question. You know, you can do it anonymously if, if you like, but how are you out of 10 and why? You'll soon get a clear impression of how mentally healthy your workforce is. A series of experiments have proven a happy workforce is a productive workforce. So from that point of view, it's a no-brainer. And that goes back to the point of just listening, listening to others around you and equally listen to your own feelings. And yes, it's okay to say, have you got a minute? I need to tell you about this. And if that pulls you away from work for 10 minutes or an hour or three days, then it doesn't matter. Just very quickly, Mike, as well, it is worth saying, and people might have already noticed this themselves, but the support you've had from a host of names, be it Jamie Redknapp, Jeff's telling there's so many from a Sky Sports world and the list of MPs supporting this is just goes on and on and on and on when you're scrolling on the website. And it's really worth having a look at batonofhopeuk.org just to kind of see the support around uh, before you've even taken a step with the baton in, in your hand. Were you surprised by that? Were, were, were you surprised and, and humbled? Yeah, both of those. I never imagined for one minute when... You know, Steve and I had that initial conversation that this would become so big and that it would capture people's imagination in the, in the way that it has. number of people, the hundreds of people who've applied to carry the, the baton and, as you say, the number of MPs who've come on board, you know, actively signed up for it and agreed to have their name and their picture attached to the cause on our website it has been you know you use the word uh, humbling is is very much the word it lifts my spirit and it lifts my heart to see the impact that the baton of hope is is having 
there's something about the timing, I think, as well. It's having the physical symbol is one thing, and that seems to have helped. But the timing, I, I feel in some ways we were kind of, if this is the right way to put it, riding on the crest of, of a wave created by other people. I think younger generations in particular have been so good in driving the conversation about mental well-being and they've created the environment whereby we can now start to talk about suicide it's not as as shocking and people are perhaps a little bit more prepared for it because and again it's a generalization but because of what the what younger people have been doing they're often dismissed as snowflakes and they've been brave and they've been on the front foot and they are the ones that have challenged the status quo by and large and i think charities like ours owe them a debt for that reason when you finish the tour mike and end up at downing street have you managed to uh to get the key for the big black gate to walk in and knock on the door at number 10, or are you still working on that? Well, we're still working on it. We've been very lucky to... The charity's been endorsed by the, the Prime Minister in question time. We launched the Workplace Charter, which is part of Baton of Hope and part of its sort of future development. Uh, this is just about suicide prevention in, in the workplace. That launch was visited by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, we were invited to meet the Speaker of the House, Sir Lindsay Hoyle. Yeah, so we've been very lucky in that respect. As to you know whether we find a resting place for the Baton in the Palace of Westminster, we're still talking about that. But again, we've been given you know some quite confident assurances that the government is on board, as are all of the main political parties. Which is lovely. Mike, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. I really thank you for your time. If you are listening to this for support and information, there's a whole host of avenues on batonofhopeuk.org. You can text SHOUT to 85258. Mike's goal is, and the Baton of Hope's goal, and everybody involved in that charity is to raise over £100,000. I really hope, Mike, you do it, and I'm pretty sure Ross is listening. Yeah, I'm sure he is, and, you know, he's uh, Ross being Ross. He would be uh, taking the mickey out of his dad, that's for sure. <laughs> but no, thank you for your interest. And yeah, thanks for, thanks for hearing us. No problem.